Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And thanks for coming back to Employee to Lawyer. We are again speaking with David Lee, the founder of the Law Offices of David L. Lee. His career has spanned more than four decades, and he's been an incredible and instrumental force for employment law for the good. Before we get into that, I am Max Barrick. This is Employee to Lawyer. And I'm Amit Bindra. Man, we made it like 20 straight episodes remembering to introduce ourselves in our show, and then once again, we forget. It's my fault, and I actually just realized I forgot to put it in our intro notes, and so that's why. So I'll take the heat on this one. That's okay. I guess I'm just like Ron Burgundy and I'll read literally anything you put in front of me. So <laughs> I just opened a dangerous new way for you to, to screw for around me to know me. that. Yeah, David, I agree. David, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me, Dan. <laughs> Especially after that first one. I was going to say David's still here even after that, that weird intro. That weird intro. Anyway, David, last time you were on, we talked about your career, big picture advice, and and we'll probably kind of still keep touching on that stuff, but we also wanted to talk about some more practical advice in this interview. Um, you know, you've worked, you've worked on a lot of employee severance cases, negotiated a lot of contracts from an employment agreement that's at the beginning of somebody's job to settlements agreements at the end. What are, you know, we've talked about some of this with other folks, Helen Block, whomever. One of the areas we wanted to visit with you, because we know you've got some opinions and ways you've approached it that are a little nuanced, is the non-disparagement clause. Can you kind of talk a little bit, you know, for lay, lay listeners and attorneys alike, what, what that is, why it matters, and why it can be such a sticking point in employment cases? Yeah, first of all, and this is, I suppose, a more general point, whether you're a lawyer or a client, don't let anybody tell you that this is a standard term. There is no such thing as a standard term in human uh, settlements. There are terms that show up a lot, but 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 there's no, like, legal requirement there's no like you know if we we never change this everything is negotiable so one that i think let let me back up he's had the feeling both when i worked with my dad and doing employment cases that the defense bar both in pi and in employment has this attitude that once the plaintiff, once the person suing has agreed to the money, they can just shove anything down your throat, you know? And that, that really bothers me. That bothers me as a lawyer, you know, that they think that I would do that, that I would just let, like roll over because the money is so, because I'm salivating at the money and the client's salivating at the money. You know, it bothers me ethically that that they would think that a lawyer would stop trying to get the best for their client just because again we're salivating at the money so so one thing i do and and you know i've spoken on this to lawyers employment lawyers all over the country is to really try and work on on the settlement and the the terms of the settlement that are not money and and basically i 
think that to the extent possible, the terms should be either mutual or mirror image, you know, so, so mutual meaning that both sides are, 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 are bound in the same way and mirror image meaning like there's, there, you know, there's something similar but a little bit different about the, the terms. So then you particularly asked about non-disparagement. So there, one lawyer skill that commercial lawyers definitely have, that employment lawyers, particularly on the employee side, should try their hardest to emulate is to draft things weaken them or make them meaningless or make them harder you know so let's say the other side says we need a non-disparagement clause take it or leave it you know that 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 there are no non-disparagement no settlement see if you can build in exceptions or things that make it weaker like one idea would be that it, it sunsets, it ends, right? So, you know, you say, okay, you can have your non-disparagement clause, but after five years, it goes away. You know? I mean, for negotiation purposes, I would suggest starting lower, you know, like after one year, it goes away. But yeah, you know, so, so there is an idea. And then another lawyer skill that we should use, and which ties into the first one, is think of how, this come, come back to bite your client, you know, and draft around that. So, so one thing that happens often is if you're presenting competition, you know, legally go into competition with their old employer, either because a non-compete expires or there's no non-compete or whatever. What would non-disparagement mean in that situation? I mean, if, if they're a salesperson and the client says, why should we go with you, your new company, rather than going with your old company, if you say like, oh, we're better than them, have you disparaged them? You know, so, so think about like, well, this doesn't apply to normal competition. This doesn't apply to head-to-head -head comparisons of our products or services. This non-disparagement doesn't apply to whatever. You know, another problem with the non-disparagement, and this is a kind of a fundamental problem, is that like nobody knows what disparagement means, you know? So disparagement as a legal term actually comes from like trademark and trade dress. And it has a whole different meaning there than it might have here. I mean, it doesn't mean like to say anything bad or, or what. So Instead of disparagement, I try to get the non-defamation clause because first of all, we know what defamation is. And second of all, truth is a defense to defamation. And third of all, the law already requires them not to defame. So, so there's, a, you know, there, you're not really adding to their burdens. And then going back to mutual or mirror image, and I think how Alan Block talked about this, was in one of your podcasts. You know, if you can't disparage 
then they can't disparage you. I mean, fair is fair, right? And I believe Helen said like, oh, but they're gonna say, yeah, but we've got 20,000 employees and we can't guarantee all the, okay, so work with what you can work with. You know, that that just won't say this, that HR won't do this, that, you know, whatever. And then sort of, I think of this as mirror image, maybe, well, let me back up. Maybe say, you know, what you can say, right? That might fit the confidentiality clause, but like, you know, it's not a breach of this non clause for either party to say this or to say this or to say this, you know, and then maybe you can trade it off against something like a, you know, well, if I can't disparage you, then you have to give me a good reference, not a neutral reference, a good reference, because what do I say when, when I go into my job interviews for my job and I'm asked, well, why, why did you leave that other job? You know, I can't say, well, they were jerks, you know, because of this. So what can I say, right? Can I show them a piece of paper where you say, I was a wonderful employee and uh, unfortunately we came to a parting of the ways, but we wish him the best and he's eligible for rehire, or, you know, or something. You know? So yeah, I mean, just going back to the start, there's no such thing as a standard clause. Try and make everything mutual or mirror image try and think through how this can come back to bite your client, you know, and develop the skill of drafting in a way to weaken, make hard to enforce or make meaningless, you know? Yeah. For all the logistical problems you just highlighted, that's why I'm a big fan of sunset provisions. Cause then it's yeah. clean. There is an expiration date. You don't, you never know, you know, an employee leaves a company tomorrow maybe five years from now, they're in the news because there was an acquisition or something happened and that employee now has a blog or they're a professor or they write for the Wall Street Journal. So to have a a clause like that for the rest of eternity is pretty draconian and logistically difficult. This comes up in other places where I'll water stuff down in the context of like a no rehire clause. So for our non-attorney listeners, a no rehire clause just means there'll be language in an agreement where a company will say the employee promises not to apply for a job with us in the future. And the reason they want that is because they don't want the employee to apply for a job, not get the job, and then threaten a lawsuit over retaliation. So I get that. The problem with those clauses, though, is it's basically a breach of the employee applies for a job and doesn't get it because that's in violation of those clauses. And sometimes the definition of company or employer is broad. It can be hundreds of entities. So you could accidentally breach a contract or clause like that. Yeah. I've had it too on that same topic where like they don't, you know, for some of the real big employers who do a lot of business with contractors, they don't want somebody who sued them, like even working for somebody who's adjacent, right? Like, so if you work for a contractor who works for them, I've had people like marched off the premises who were with third parties who'd never been with that employer over that exact issue, which we had litigated and tried to make sure didn't happen. And yet when push comes to shove, you still end up in that scenario where they're like, nope, don't even want to look at them ever again. And yeah, it's and, just an and, accident. It's not intentional. Right. right. And, and that's an area where it helps to really try and think through how can come back and screw my client. And of course, the more experience you have, you just put that into your back. You know, you've already figured that out and maybe there's some, so, so with an application clause, first of all, again, sunset it, it ends after whatever, 
Second of all, and this goes back to, I believe you just said this, Amit, limit who they can't apply to. You know, I mean, that gets into sort of a technicality of the release language, which is another whole problem, but is often really broadly drafted. And maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But, you know, the no reapplication clause should not pick up the same people you're releasing, right? The no reapplication clause should be you can't apply to maybe like this unit of this company and and write out, you know, write to specifically take out of the clause the all sorts of innocent things. It's not a breach if you apply to a blind ad. It's not a breach if you apply to an ad that doesn't say that the company's affiliated with the the employer. It's not a breach if you respond to a personal solicitation. Like, you know. What I'll do sometimes, I'll just make the language passive. So it's just not a breach. They can reject the employment, but it's not a breach of the agreement itself because it shouldn't be. It can be an accident. And so the company can make whatever decision they want to make. We won't sue them over it. Yeah. Unless there is a different reason why. And that's another option too. Well, and I think yeah. and, and I think to build on it, you also want to talk to your client. And if your client knows the industry very well and is sophisticated, and you can ask them, look, here's how they're going to present this. Here's how I usually fight it. You know, where are you likely to come across these guys again? Talk to them and figure out like what they're going to need to be able to move on with their lives and continue to exist in whatever industry they're in. Yeah. And, and I think it was you, Max, who brought up the whole, like, what if you work for a subcontractor idea? You know, I, I always write in that it's not the no reapplication clause is not a reason to refuse to do business with any sub employer of the client. It's not a reason or a justification for firing our client should he be rehired by you. Should he be working for a company that merges or is acquired by or acquires, you know, your company? Just just think of all the ways that that this could come to bite you, to bite your client. And and you t- you you get that, I think, in three places. You get that from your clients, you get that from your own imagination, and you get that from experience, your own personal experience in life. So like, like I have a, I guess, a war story. I was, you know, refinancing my mortgage, right? And putting down a down payment. And the bank I was refinancing with had a question that they asked, you know, a form on their, on their application form, which is, where'd you get this money? Right? Where'd you get the money for the down payment? And it, you know, it, and it dawned on me, holy shit! All my clients who settled with confidentiality that say they they can't tell about getting money from the employer, how do they apply for mortgages or loans or something like that? Right? And then it occurred to me, oh, and and there's requirements on like really big deposits, right? You know, if you deposit a huge amount of money, the bank will ask, like, where did you get this? And all those clients were in technical breach. So I put into, I can talk my form policy. I put into that that a confidentiality clause does not apply to, you know, a question from bank or lender about source of funds, right? And so the, so... 
I brought this up at a settlement conference with, with a wonderful magistrate judge who has since retired, one of the best judges I've ever been in front of. And he was like, well, why do you need this exception? And I was like, you haven't applied for a mortgage recently, have you? <laughs> so real life, you know, brings up all these sorts of things. And, and it, one thing about companies, well, there's many things about companies that I could go into. But it seems like when they're trying to fire somebody or they're trying to retaliate against somebody, they seem to think they've invented something new when our experience, having been through this, you know, hundreds or thousands of times, depending how long you've been in practice, it's not new. It's all the same, you know, but I can just, I can just envision you know, like the, the boss saying, oh, I know, we'll, we'll start to give him worse evaluations. Nobody's thought of this before, right? Yeah, right. But one, one thing that I do to negotiate settlements is I have a written policy on non-monetary terms of employment settlements, which I, you know, continually revise. And here I have to give a, a shout out uh, to John Madden, who's both the husband and law partner of Megan O'Malley, who you guys did a podcast with about the city of Chicago, which is a great podcast. And if any of your listeners, whether lawyers or laymen, are involved in a suit with the city, definitely go listen to that podcast with Megan. But we were at- And, and hire Megan too. Yeah, 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 of course. And, and David will be our hype man for the show moving forward also, FYI. He doesn't know that yet, but. <laughs> Anyways, we're at Anila, Illinois conference and talking, and John was on a panel talking about settlements. And he was telling, I guess, a war story about how the company lawyer said, in a course, we need a tax indemnity, that if there's any extra taxes or anything like that, the client will indemnify us. That, that is, the client will pay them what they owe in taxes, which, which is a problem. But, but anyways, for the point for this war story is that John and his war story, lawyer, we have a firm policy that hourly workers reimburse multi-billion dollar corporations, right? Do not indemnify multi-billion dollar corporations. And I thought, what a great idea. I'll, I'll, I'll create a policy, but it'll have like everything in it, everything that they try and get away with that I can think of. And, and I'll use it. So I, I told John about this and I've showed him the policy over the years. And one time he told me, yeah, when he said firm policy, he meant firm like unyielding, not firm like law firm. And I changed it into <laughs> law firm. But for lawyers out there, I would recommend, and I this both on the Neely, Illinois listserv and on the national listserv many times, and I'd be happy to send it to anybody or post it again. You know, have a policy about like what you won't agree to. And, you know, be, you're welcome to adopt mine. I think that's smart. And a lot of times too, you're working with some of the same attorneys. So if you've gone through this process once with one firm or one attorney, they know the second time around, 
how it's going to go. It, it does make things a little bit smoother. So you mentioned earlier having things in your bag, and part of that's you know it builds upon based on experience, life experience, legal experience, etc. Talking to your own clients on the monetary side, we've talked about non-monetary terms, but on the monetary side. What are some tips or advice or things you have in your bag that you think other attorneys should work on developing? So what, what I do, I approach it, I think, a little differently. I approach it from the client side, and I ask the client, what, what would they want to accomplish with the money? I, I give them my sort of winning the lottery, although I don't call it that because I don't want to get that idea in their head. But the, the, my, what, would, what would I do with the money? Uh, I tell them, what I want you to do is, you know, talk to important people in your life and all that and come back to me with a list of what you would do and roughly how much it would cost, you know? So like, and then prioritize so like I would pay off all my credit cards, $15,000, right? I would buy a new car, $25,000. I want to take my spouse on a nice vacation to make up for all the stress, $5,000, right? In, in, in priority order. And some clients really get into it. I can tell that they've researched it and they've gone on the internet and cruise bosses and this group. But, but, but then we have that list and I, I tell him, look, I think we can accomplish one and two, right? I think we can pay off your credit cards and, and you know, spouse on a right? If we did that, would you be okay? And the client says, yeah, you know, so, okay, I'm gonna try and accomplish as much on this list as possible pretty sure we can get one and two, you know? And then in negotiating with the other side, one thing is in federal court, there's something called initial disclosures where each side has to, by rule, send the other side certain information without waiting for the other side to ask for it or anything like that. And if you're suing, one of the things you have to send is a calculation of damages. As a lawyer, I would take that super seriously and put together right at the start, because you're going to have to do this at some point anyways, the best calculation of damages you can. Think about interest, think about the value of benefits, think about everything you can legitimately claim. And that's your starting point, plus attorney's fees. Now, some of it it might be vague, you know, like punitive damages, 300,000, whatever, but, but have the hard damages figured out as best you can, as detailed as you can. When I send it to the client, I say, you know, please don't get dollars in your eyes because this is our home run. And the, frankly, there's a lot of water in here. Like, you know, punitive damages, 300,000, we might get zero. You know, it's very likely we'll get zero. But with that as your starting point and with your clients, you know, what I would do with the money list as your ending point, try and negotiate as close as possible to the point and, you know, go from there. I'm not sure I, 
I'm not sure I'm giving very good advice. <laughs> no, you are. I mean, I think the reality is everybody approaches settlement differently. Everybody manages client expectations differently. And unfortunately, no matter how many times you put something in writing, verbalize it to people, tell them, listen, this is just a demand. It's not money. You know, I had a mediator once tell me, you know, you say you've moved this amount, but what you're misunderstanding is you don't actually have that money. You and your client are saying, well, we moved this much and they've only moved this much, but like, it's all hypothetical. You've moved from what you think you're entitled to, but not what you've actually earned yet. So like, you know, you've been doing this a long time and these are all, I think, I think the takeaway message, right, that you're saying, David, that's so important is setting and then continuing to communicate and manage expectations as you're throughout the process is the key term there, right? Because right. otherwise people have no reason, you know, they've gone to you for advice, right? They don't know why you're making these moves. You can tell them, but like, unless you sit and walk through it with them and explain how it's going to go one way or the other, it, it, it's all very esoteric to the regular person, I think. Yeah. And, and some clients have difficulty sort of internalizing the different roles of a lawyer. So, I mean, I, I try very hard to tell my clients, look, when I'm talking to the judge or side, I'm putting forward your best case, right? It may be better than your best case, but that's me trying to win for you. When I'm talking to you, I'm giving you my best advice, you know? So, so that's different than what I'm telling the other side. Right? And my best advice might be, we're not gonna get everything that we're asking for. Please understand I'm telling you that because that is my best advice and I owe you my best advice. I once had a client, I think he was Pakistani and he had a little bit of an accent. And he, so he pronounced the word lawyer as liar, which to my ears sounded like liar. That sounds pretty and, accurate sometimes. Pardon? That might be accurate in some circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So we were at a settlement conference in the Human Rights Commission and I was to the judge to the who was acting as a you know a mediator and to the other side i was pushing as hard as i could i mean trying to be nice but pushing as hard as i could and then i'd go to the 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 client and say look you know they're 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 really kind of standing firm i don't we're not going to get what we're asking for i could maybe get this much, you know, and the, the client didn't like that. And he was pressing the opinion in that I was him, but it was coming out like, my liar, <laughs> don't be, be my liar, be a liar for me. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> Yeah, the one big takeaway I have from all of this is it's just so important to have constant communication with your client from the very beginning through the end of the process because they don't they don't entirely know how the legal process is going to go. Even the point you mentioned about initial disclosures, you're anchoring it at the ceiling, so the client has to understand that's the best case scenario, yeah, not the yeah, or realistic or probable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So having talked to folks who know you well. One thing that always comes up generally is just your strategy skills and how thoughtful you are about that. 
So what advice do you have to attorneys on how to improve their strategy skills short of, I guess, becoming a, an expert chess player, which I'm assuming had some influence on that? Well, that would be one. Yeah. But I, I, I think, you know, find a, a game you enjoy that has strategy in it. Uh, we were talking a bit off camera and you're a poker player, I understand. And, and we were talking, I think poker might actually be better than chess, but I'm a chess player, not a poker player. Better than chess in terms of trans into legal practice. But, but find a game you like that has strategy and, and play it. And, you know, where you are making the decision. That, 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 that's the difference between like, you know, spectating at a baseball game and saying, oh, you know, I think I'd take. You're not really making a decision. You're just sitting back and talking. Play a game, whether it's chess or poker or, you know, anything that has a strategy element and, and actually make decisions and see how they work out. And then actually try and think about, I mean, this is a chess player skill, but everybody can think about this. If I do this, what are they likely to do? What is like their best response? And if they do what I think is their best response, how do I respond to their best response? So that's kind of game theory in a way. But, you know, it's very specific to, to some particular games. And, and also, you know, try and be mentored by people you think are good at it. One way is to join Neela Illinois or Neela and Neela both and go on the listserv. Ask, you know, I'm in a situation. What, what should I do? And you'll get a bunch of answers, you know, and some of them will strike you as being good strategy. And then that will be in your bag of tricks forevermore. And you'll also watch the interactions where other people are asking similar questions. And those answers will be in your bag of tricks forevermore. I agree with that. I think learning from other people is incredibly valuable. With poker specifically, one thing that's, I learned a lot from, I learned a lot from a strategy standpoint playing poker. But one thing you write about is, you have to anticipate the whole process. When you make your first bet, you're thinking about the end game of how is that whole sequence going to end? If you make this bet, what are other people going to do? How are you going to react? So you're setting it all in motion from the very beginning. And I'm sure it's the same way with chess. You make that first opening move, you see everything play out. The same thing with litigation. You know, you have your initial disclosures, you say what the ceiling or more than the ceiling of damages are, and then you see all of that play out. And I One, I, I do not play poker, but you know, it's hard to be in our culture and not absorb a little bit, at least. And one poker theme, I guess, that, that I think is very helpful is the idea of a tell. Because this is, first of all, this is about your opponent. It's not about the objective conditions of the play, in a sense. But, you know, if they, if they, if they do something that lets you know that they're bluffing or how they think of, of their position. And so like one time I was representing somebody who was one of the founders of a company. And over the decades had brought in other partners. And so they were all equal partners, 
now there were like four. He was the last original founder. One had been bought out, a couple had died, you know, and the three new partners who he had brought in some years later got together and fired him. And so we negotiated and then brought a lawsuit, which went to meeting, not a settlement conference, mediation, because there was no neutral there, but it was a meeting of the lawyers and the clients to try and settle it. And the other side was playing, negotiating really hard. You know, we're not paying, you deserve this, blah, 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 blah. And I said, like, well, what if we, like, write out a proposal, you know? And they said, well, okay. And we went back to our private room, and I was talking to my client, and I said, we're going to settle today. And my client said, no, they're, they're, they're not giving an inch. How do you, what makes you think we're going to settle today? I said, because they said, okay, when I said I'd write out a proposal. That was a tell. That was that, that was sort of verbal body language that they were interested in negotiating and that everything else was a bluff. So I think that's a very valuable poker idea. I guess it's just, you know, like psychology in a sense, but, you know, really pay attention to your opponent. And what they don't say, I think, too, is often more important than what they do say, right? Like we are, we as plaintiffs litigators in the employment law context in particular, I think are pretty conditioned to hear your clients lying. You have no case. This is meritless. We'll never settle. There's a finite, I mean, pick them. There's a bag of phrases that are pretty much, you can just, it's like the, the magic eight ball. You shake it and one of these are going to come out every time we send a demand letter, file a lawsuit, or get on the phone with opposing counsel. You will hear one of these 10 to 20 things. You know, I mean, in my end, I think the thing that I found most, most interesting is when somebody has got something that disarms your case, if they're actually trying to help their client and end the case, they're going to rub your nose in it or wave it in front of you immediately. It, you know, if it exonerates their client, undercuts your case, whatever. So blanket denials with zero substance at any point, I always find to be a pretty good tell that the other side is full of it, at least in some measure. Because if you had something exonerating, you'd probably tell me. What would be the point in hiding it? Absolutely. You, you really hit the hit it on the nose there. And in your podcast with Rich Gonzalez, he said something like early on in the case, like maybe if it's at the EEOC, HR will do the response, not a lawyer. And they say like the most amazing thing that that often happens there, you know, or in response to a request for a personnel file, which they have a right to under Illinois law, which employees have a right to in, in an argument a lawyer defending an employment case. If they lead with this is employment at will, I think that that's a tell that they don't have a really good reason for having fired your client. Because as Matt said, if they had a good reason, they'd rub your nose in it. If there is, well, the law lets us do this, then that's not very good. No. David, you've been so generous with your time and we want to respect it. Anything else you want to plug today? Anything you got coming up? Any, any, anything you'd like to mention before we, before we sign off? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things, if that's okay. Always. I was talking, talking about the policy on non-monetary terms. If you're a lawyer, use it. Send it with your first contact. Send it 
settlement proposal with you to the to the mediation or the settlement conference if the rules of the mediation or settlement conference permit or require you sort of pre-mediation submission submit it then you know before you've agreed to the money but i like to try and find the point where you've made a lot of progress and it seems likely you're going to settle but you're far enough apart that it's not certain I like to say like, oh, we've made a lot of progress on the money. Let's turn to the non-monetary terms, which I think is fair because then your client knows what they're agreeing to, you know? Yeah, use that, that non-monetary term policy. Another thing that I think lawyers could do better, lawyers on the, on the employee side particularly, is framing things. You know, you, you want to put things in the best frame for you. So like one example is lawyers will often say they're under an exception to the general rule, right? That's a terrible frame. If you're under an exception, that's a rule in and of itself. So, you, so, so instead of saying like, the general rule is employment at will and you can, for any reason, reason or no reason at all, but there's an exception if you filed a workers' comp claim and this is in retaliation for that, forget the general rule, you know, frame it on the rule you're going on, which is the law is that if you're fired in retaliation for filing a workers' comp claim, that's illegal, right? So think about framing. Another example is, Max, you said you do a lot of non So in non-compete cases, the non-competition clause is often written as something like, you know, within 25 miles radius of your location, right? That's a very employer-friendly frame. You know, the 25 miles doesn't sound like a lot, you know? I mean, you know, we drive more than 25 miles pretty easily. So do the math, you know, the, 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 the area of a circle is pi r squared, right? So 25 squared is 625. Pi is more than three. So that's like 1875, maybe 1900 if you carry pi out to a few digits. So instead of saying, you know, this non-competition clause prohibits competition within 25 miles of the last place of employment, Say, you know, this prohibits competition in 1,900 square miles around the place of employment, right? Just frame it so that without lying, the truth, you're putting forth something that's more psychologically helpful to you. I'm impressed how you did the math just off the top of your head there. (laughs) And that point reminds me of what you said in your last interview in terms of cross-examination skills, a logic piece. Of, yeah. There are some times where you can reframe or re-augment an argument, just like you just said. Comedians are great about this. They highlight the absurdity within someone's position, and that's exactly what you just did there with the mile radius. Yeah, yeah. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set.
I have a war story, if it's okay. In the last podcast, I talked about, you know, there's the preparation skill and cross, there's the logic, story logics, and there's a strategic skill. So I had a, a case, this was in the 1990s, where basically I was appointed counsel for somebody who was pro se in an ADA case that was going to a jury trial. And the client had taken no depositions. The judge let me take one dep, so I took a 30B6 dep. The client's disability was a mental disability. And she thought her supervisor was after her, trying to fire her. I hadn't posed the supervisor because he was not, for, for those who are lay people, uh, a 30B6 step is a deposition of the organization. So instead of taking like Joe Blow, you take, you know, the corporation. And the corporation, you, you and the way that works is you list topics and the corporation gets to name the people who respond to the topics. So they hadn't named the supervisor. So the client, the whole time I had been on this telling me what a jerk the supervisor was, how the jury would just see them, you know, and, and, and all that. And so the employer calls the supervisor and he's like the nicest guy, you know, and I'm looking over at the jury and they love him. But the technical defense was that my client had asked for a transfer and, as an accommodation and the, the, the supervisor hadn't approved the transfer. Okay. So the clients after me, like, kill him, kill him on the stand, kill him, you know? And I'm like, no way that will work. That just won't work. But I think I can make this guy my witness, you know? So I, so I said to him, and this was like, you'll hear, it's like a four-question cross-examination. I said, um, you were the plaintiff's supervisor, right? And how long were you this long? You were her supervisor when she was back before she was fine. Hired, right? She was a little challenging to supervise. Oh yeah, yeah, she was quite a challenge. So you wouldn't have had any objection to approving a transfer for her, would you? No, God no. It's a, thank you very much. So, so I, 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 that's what I have in mind when I'm talking about a strategic cross. You know, I made that guy my witness, and we actually won. So. One more war story from that case, if you'll indulge me. This is about settlement. The defendant appealed. We went to the Seventh Circuit, the federal appellate Chicago, and they had they had just started at that point a settlement conference project. And we settled. It was less than the client wanted, but we settled. And within about four months, which is shorter than the appeal, would have lasted probably. Between Seventh Supreme Court, there were four different ways the case type of defendant. The Seventh Circuit said you couldn't request the transfer as a reasonable accommodation. There were two other things. And so one thing about settlement for lawyers and clients is you never know what's going to happen. You keep the future and settlement finalizes everything without running the future risk. 
David, uh, we learned on your last episode that your website is may need to be updated, but how can people reach it if they want to get a hold of you? My email is D, like David, and then a hyphen, and then last name, L-E, at davidleelaw.com. And then either call or text my cell, which is 312-952-1321. Careful, David. You're going to get a lot of weird texts if you're not, uh, if you're not cautious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you may get some bots now. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, for the war it, stories, for your knowledge, for everything you've done for our bar, David. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting uh, we're so lucky to have you. A major thank you to David Lee. Big thank you to everybody at home for listening. Please do subscribe and share. Leave us a rating. Tell your friends and family. It's good for our bar association, gives our members exposure, gives an opportunity to regular folks who might not know that employment lawyers exist and that there are people like David Lee who have all these years of experience and can help. So please mention it to people. Thanks for listening. Thanks, David. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.